1: On the Record with White House correspondent April Ryan.
0: I'm so excited about today's podcast. You're joining me with April Ryan and On the Record, and I am with DeRay McKesson, uh, someone that we saw in the fight for justice and freedoms uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, and now he's written a book on the other side of freedom. DeRay, thank you for joining me.
1: It's so good to be here.
0: Yes. Deway, um, what's the other side of freedom? What, what does that look like?
1: You know, that's why I wrote the book, because I, uh, we know this side of freedom all too well, right? We know that we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined. We know that a third of all the people killed by a stranger in this country is killed by a police officer. Like, we know those things too well. And I wanted to think about, like, what is on the other side of freedom? How do we get there? So when I wrote the book, conversation about like how do we think about the police differently what's the role of imagination the role of faith and hope it's not an easy question but I tried to get to the biggest pillars that I thought we need to engage to get to the other side most importantly this idea of hope that hope is a notion that our tomorrows can be better than our today's and I think the that better that our fuel
0: hmm. so you're talking about hope but You know, a lot of people are saying there's no hope right now (laughs) in the midst of an administration that they consider not to be as freedom friendly uh, or as equality friendly. Um, And particularly with an administration that views police as can do no wrong to a certain extent, according to some, um, and and won't acknowledge those who are taking a knee or Black Lives Matter. What say you?
1: Yeah, you know, when... When when we say the system is broken, some people say, oh, no, it was designed to be like that. My takeaway from that is that it was designed, right? That people made this up, and because people made it up, we can make something better. And you know this because you're in that White House, is that if they can rewrite the tax code on the back of scrap paper, then, like, don't tell me it has to take us 400 years to do our work. They're like, we can actually do this pretty quick, too. And those things drive me. The hope doesn't come. I mean, the the solutions we want don't come as easily or as often as we want them but
0: I know they're possible Hmm. but we live in a land of possibilities and our possibilities are are being overshadowed Um, what concerns you most right now I mean you know uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick you know a lot of these people who who are out there pushing it and and, and putting themselves on the line uh, for our freedom so we can exercise our freedoms what are your conversations with with Colin Kaepernick if you don't mind me asking and I know that's personal but, you know, he has started a movement. And Nike's picked up on it when football organizations won't.
1: Yeah, we think with the power of Colin, right? that like Colin is as kind in person as you want him to be. He understands the issues. He's committed to, like, using his platform to talk about them. And, like, that's what we talk about. It's, like, how do we think about this work around policing, mass incarceration? Uh, and he uses his platform to do it in addition to the philanthropic work that he does. And, and you know, it's important to remember that Colin still, like, works out every day, he's ready to play, he is not taking a break from being an athlete, and he shouldn't have to, right, that, like, if you think about affluent white people, or white people in general, they get to be, like, athletes and parents, athletes and husbands and wives, and, like, Colin gets to be an athlete and somebody who cares about the world. He doesn't have to choose one or the other. But I think that that's an important stance to remember.
0: Let me ask you this. When we, when we deal with this taking the knee, and that's dealing with the freedom, you know, uh, the president called people who take a knee unpatriotic and we're talking about it's our freedoms are you someone who takes the knee with colin kaepernick or or, or on this or, or or where do you stand on, on, on this whole issue well
1: i'm all about taking the knee but like and that's like the least that we can do right that like what colin was doing in that in that moment was just having a public recognition of something that you and i both know is real is Colin saying that racism is real and present and that it's present in larger society and policing and generally in the criminal justice system and that's just true and the Neil was a way to recognize that and to, and to make people deal with that you know people talk about truth and reconciliation all the time but the reality is is the truth has to come before the reconciliation and people don't want to do that and I think that that's what Colin is sort of putting in our face that's what we were putting in people's face when we were in the street in St. Louis during the initial wave of the protest it was like about saying to people, like, oh, no, no, we got to deal with this. There's no way to move on until we deal with the hard truth. And that's what Colin's asking us to do, is deal with the hard truth first.
0: So give us some of your anecdotes from from on the other side of freedom, you know, from the marching that you did. You know, you you were in Baltimore. That's when I started um, uh, finding out who you were. And then then you started coming to the White House, you know, and, and you had the ear of the president and Valerie Jarrett, um, people who really supported you. What do you think about, um, you know, that, and, and how is it uh, portrayed in your book? With the How are these antidotes portrayed in your book?
1: Yeah, some of it is like, you know, if you have us marching in St. Louis in August, September, October, 2014, it wasn't that we got marching with school, it was actually illegal to stand still. And if we stood still for more than five seconds, we were arrested. And I write about those things because those are real and, and sort of wild reminders of where we've been. And then you think about those meetings with President Obama. You know, we were in the room trying to think about what these solutions look like. What could the federal government look like? There are 18,000 police departments in the country. The federal government has a role to play in oversight. And so many of the decisions are local. So how do we push him? How do we push governors? How do we... Equip mayors and city councilmen. Uh, you know, we created the first public database of use of force policies in the country, the first uh, public database of police sharing contracts in the country, and the most comprehensive database on police violence that exists. Like, we did those things, and we did it because we knew that people just needed to be armed with the information. So, when we walked into the White House, it came with that, it came with the concrete ideas at the local level, at the state level, about like what we could do to change the scenario. Because it's no shock think the police aren't being held accountable, like the structure actually isn't set up to do that. And we wanted to tease those things out. So when I think about what comes next, you know, four years since the protests in St. Louis, is that we've definitely built awareness about these issues. And the question now is, how do we turn that awareness into
0: power? Hmm. So, So, how does power and freedom play? Because it seems like the higher you are these days, the less freedoms people have, it's more about what I say goes versus looking at the Constitution. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think that like uh, you know the numbers are on the side of the left. The process is not on the side of the left. And like all the gerrymandering, all of that, the confluence of voter suppression actually is what has weakened uh, the way that electoral politics has worked for the left. You know, I was just uh, talking to somebody the other day, and I don't know if you knew this, April, but one of the hindrances to young people completing absentee ballots is uh, stamped? Is that there are a lot of people literally who just don't know where to buy a stamp? Like, they've never had to buy a stamp Are you kidding
0: me? Oh, my gosh! Yes.
1: Who knew, right? There's, like, a new study that came out that talked about, like, access to stamps is actually a big barrier, a much bigger barrier than you would think. Uh, And you think about all these reasons why, like, why people aren't voting. It's not that people don't care. It's not that people don't think their voting is important. It's like, how do we just start to unpack the barriers better? And, like, I'm interested in that. Is that... There's another study, um, and I think you'll find this interesting, is that you probably heard people say that when you get older, like, uh, the older people are more conservative, and, like, as you get older, people get more conservative. Is that what this one study um, shows that just came out is that it's not even necessarily that older people, that people get more conservative as they age. It's actually that, uh, like, poor people, people of color who are more likely to be liberal, they actually just never get older, right? They die interesting. So I think that there's like a lot to be done to like organize people to build power differently, to like help people imagine what freedom looks like uh, and for us to push back against these systems that suppress our ability to be involved.
0: So, and let's talk about voting. You know, this is a critical time. Everyone from the Congressional Black Caucus to the NAACP, every group, every Black group pretty much is pushing uh, for people to go to the polls, and um, what I don't understand is a group that that, that you really have a a, a, a hold on the, the millennials. They want to use their vote as protest. What do you say to that? And that's their freedom, and that's their they have rights to do that. Um, they 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 have a constitution that supports that they can do that. But also, it's a privilege to vote, and so many people die. I mean, where do you stand on that with the freedom issue, or the other side of freedom?
1: Yeah, you know, I think about voting as, like, we're trying to build a house. And when we build the house, we want to make sure that we use every tool in the toolkit. We know that a hammer alone doesn't work, screwdriver alone doesn't work. And I think about how the toolkit as being ways to be involved. So we know that voting is like the hammer. We need it. Can't build a house without it. We also know that running for office is is another one of the tools. We know that being in the street is one of the tools. So I never think about this as like voting is not the end all be all. It is one of the critical uh, tools that we need when we build this house. So when I think about there's some people who, you know, I think this was more prevalent when, before Trump won, is there are people who are like, the president doesn't matter. Why are you wasting your voice? This doesn't, this doesn't count, that that. You know, people aren't saying that anymore because they realize just how, uh, how absurd that is that like the president actually has a role to play and that, like you not being involved actually allows for other people to do real damage i think that what's also true is that there are people like me who voted our entire lives and like we still had to go through a lot of really awful things that we told never would happen i voted my entire life got dragged out of police department by my ankles i voted my entire life and got shot at with rubber bullets like uh, so it wasn't this panacea, but I also understand that, like, voting is one of many things, and we need to talk about it as one of many things and help people understand that they can use that tool to make a specific type of difference. Hmm.
0: So that tool, that's one of the tools on the toolkit, but is voting fighting back, or is it just exercise on the right?
1: No, I think it's both, right? Is that, like, is it both and? and and that's important, right? That like uh, we got to get the right people in because we can't just be fighting the people. We got to be those people. So we need to run ourselves. We need to hold the people we get in to be accountable. That like Kim Fox is a great example. Of that they got Kim Fox elected in um, in Chicago, and like that didn't stop their advocacy. They're still pressing Kim. They're still asking Kim questions. They're still partnering with her because they know that her being there means that there's a uh, at least a baseline level of. Uh, like understanding of equity, but also that like part of the way that democracy works is that people press and people push and people ask, and like that has to be a part of the commitment too. So I think about electoral politics as like a both hands.
0: Uh-huh. Well, you know, um, I'm just so I just want to I want to take this personal privilege. Um, uh, this moment for personal privilege to say I'm proud of you for writing this book. Um, when I saw up and, and even as we both have books out at the same time, I'm rooting for you. And I'm really rooting for you because, I mean, you really believe in, in the fight for justice and humanity. And, 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 and if you want to put race in there, you can, but police-involved abuses and killings is about humanity, not just about race either. But I'm so proud of you. I mean, you're someone who marched in Baltimore, you know, um, in, in, in in you and in, in, in Ferguson and everywhere else. But you hailed from Baltimore. You worked in Baltimore. You worked in the education system. How was it you to switch gears to write a book? Because I know I almost died in those six months <laughs> writing my book. It was a lot. How did you do it?
1: Uh, it almost killed me, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a different process, isn't it?
1: Oh, it is, yeah. You know, what? some of the essays I'd essentially been writing in my head for the past four years, So they were just a matter of, like,
0: how do I you get the words?
1: Yeah. There were some that, like, you know, I write about being gay. I write about my mother leaving I was a kid. There's some things I just had these essays I had just been not engaging the issue seriously before because uh-huh. I was, for whatever reason, I was trying to like put it out of my head. Uh-huh. Um, and that was, those were hard. Like they, they took a lot more time to do. So I write about God. I write about uh, the presence or absence of God and, and the movement and just the way we think about the work. I write about it. So some of those were hard. The things about the police and the protests, they were like some of the easiest chapters because I had like, you know, that's what I do when I wake up every day, I engage those
0: issues. But I, I want to hit on something, being a gay activist, this isn't new. A lot of people sometimes feel that's new. It's not new. We, you know, Baird Rustin is starting to come out about him uh, being uh, gay in the in the civil rights movement over 50 years ago. Um, and, and how do you delve into that? How did, how did that impact you? Um, how, what did you, what was the revelation? Cause sometimes when you write it's cathartic and you really find out how you really felt in writing it down, what did you find in that? And, and, and how does that play in the book?
1: Yeah, you know, I just, uh, you know, I, I, it was never in the closet. It, there are a lot of activists who are in the LGBTQ space, and, you know, it, when we when we use our voices publicly, we make it safer for everybody, so that's real. And I wanted to, there's no way for me to write a book about any of this work, about freedom, about justice, without being all of who I am. And, you know, there's a quote in the book that, you know, if your love for me requires that I hide a part of who I am, then that's not love, Right? Uh, so, so I wanted to do that. I think that it's important in these moments. You see women, you see people, you see uh, people of color generally, you see uh, queer folks like showing up and, and being recognized as like whole participants in ways that just wasn't happening in the civil rights movement. So, I think that all of that is actually really powerful uh, I, no necessary re- revelations as much as like I just had to find the whole sentences you know I had to find whole paragraphs to, to describe uh, what it was like when my me and my father had the conversation about identity or like uh, you know how do I think about love those sort of things and what does it mean for the movement like how does homophobia show up how does
0: homophobia yeah.
1: show up in, in the general public
0: huh. so overall what would you tell me about your book on the other side of freedom what, what would you what do you want to to offer to the world about this great book that you've written?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a meditation on the the most important experiences and lessons that I've learned. I I think people walk away like learning just more about the world than they knew before, certainly more about mass incarceration, the police, and and the way the system sort of functions, and also being pushed to think about their own lives and to be introspective in ways that they might not have been before. So I'm proud of it, um, and I hope that it is both a, a lesson and
0: tool for people. Huh? Will you write another book? Oh, I,
1: don't, you know, you, you, uh, you know, you've written
0: two. I don't know how no, you. No, I've written three. <laughs> three, Lord. <laughs> oh it's tough, and you know, oh. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you a, a little bit of a of a lesson. I swore after the first book, i will never write again. And Michelle Bernard um, from NBC said, "April, you need to write because every book publisher does not offer you a chance to write another book." And after that, I wrote two more. But, you know, you'll find it. You'll find yourself, especially when this continues to climb, you know, up the bestsellers list. I think you'll find your way. Well,
1: well, so good to be in conversation. I hope to see
0: you soon. You will, DeRay. Thank you so much. I'm April Ryan. Thank you so much, DeRay McKesson, the author, well, the humanitarian, the activist, and now author of this bestseller, On the Other Side of Freedom. Go get it. Go get it. Go get it. Thank you, DeRay. I'm April Ryan with On the Record. Don't forget to subscribe to On The Record on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review.
1: On The Record, a product of American Urban Radio Networks.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.